Section 19 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1D section nineteen chapter forty part six charles in order to cover this barbarous perfidy pretended that a conspiracy of the huguenots to seize his person had been suddenly detected and that he had been necessitated for his own defence to proceed to this severity against them he sent orders to fenelon his ambassador in england to ask an audience and to give elizabeth this account of the late transaction that minister a man of probity abhorred the treachery and cruelty of his court and even scrupled not to declare that he was now ashamed to bear the name of frenchman yet he was obliged to obey his orders and make use of the apology which had been prescribed to him he met with that reception from all the courtiers which he knew the conduct of his master had so well merited nothing could be more awful and affecting than the solemnity of his audience a melancholy sorrow sat on every face silence as in the dead of night reigned through all the chambers of the royal apartment the courtiers and ladies clad in deep mourning were ranged on each side and allowed him to pass without affording him one salute or favourable look till he was admitted to the queen herself that princess received him with a more easy if not a more gracious countenance and heard from fenelon's dispatches his apology without discovering any visible symptoms of indignation she then told him that though on the first rumour of this dreadful intelligence she had been astonished that so many brave men and loyal subjects who rested secure on the faith of their sovereign should have been suddenly butchered in so barbarous a manner she had hitherto suspended her judgment till further and more certain information should be brought to her that the account which he had given even if founded on no mistake or bad information though it might alleviate would by no means remove the blame of the king's counsellors or justify the strange irregularity of their proceedings that the same force which without resistance had massacred so many defenceless men could easily have secured their persons and have reserved them for a trial and for punishment by a legal sentence which would have distinguished the innocent from the guilty that the admiral in particular being dangerously wounded and environed by the guards of the king on whose protection he seemed entirely to rely had no means of escape and might surely before his death have been convicted of the crimes imputed to him that it was more worthy of a sovereign to reserve in his own hands the sword of justice than to commit it to bloody murderers 
who being the declared and mortal enemies of the persons accused employed it without mercy and without distinction that if these sentiments were just even supposing the conspiracy of the protestants to be real how much more so if that crime was a calumny of their enemies invented for their destruction that if upon inquiry the innocence of these unhappy victims should afterwards appear it was the king's duty to turn his vengeance on their defamers who had thus cruelly abused his confidence had murdered so many of his brave subjects and had done what in them lay to cover him with everlasting dishonour and that for her part she should form her judgment of his intentions by his subsequent conduct and in the meantime should act as desired by the ambassador and rather pity than blame his master for the extremities to which he had been carried elizabeth was fully sensible of the dangerous situation in which she now stood in the massacre of paris she saw the result of that general conspiracy formed for the extermination of the protestants and she knew that she herself as the head and protectress of the new religion was exposed to the fury and resentment of the catholics the violence and cruelty of the spaniards in the low countries was another branch of the same conspiracy and as charles and philip two princes early allied in perfidy and barbarity as well as in bigotry had now laid aside their pretended quarrel and had avowed the most entire friendship she had reason as soon as they had appeased their domestic commotions to dread the effects of their united counsels the duke of guise also and his family whom charles in order to deceive the admiral had hitherto kept at a distance had now acquired an open and entire ascendant in the court of france and she was sensible that these princes from personal as well as political reasons were her declared and implacable enemies the queen of scots their near relation and close confederate was the pretender to the throne and though detained in custody was actuated by a restless spirit and besides her foreign allies possessed numerous and zealous partisans in the heart of the kingdom for these reasons elizabeth thought it more prudent not to reject all commerce with the french monarch but still to listen to the professions of friendship which he made her she allowed even the negotiations to be renewed for her marriage with the duke of alencon charles's third brother those with the duke of anjou had already been broken off she sent the earl of worcester to assist in her name at the baptism of a young princess born to charles but before she agreed to give him this last mark of condescension she thought it becoming her dignity to renew her expressions of blame and even of detestation against the cruelties exercised on his protestant subjects meanwhile she prepared herself for that attack which seemed to threaten her from the combined power and violence of the romanists she fortified portsmouth 
put her fleet in order, exercised her militia, cultivated popularity with her subjects, acted with vigour for the further reduction of Scotland under obedience to the young king, and renewed her alliance with the German princes, who were no less alarmed than herself at these treacherous and sanguinary measures so universally embraced by the Catholics. But though Elizabeth cautiously avoided coming to extremities with Charles, the greatest security that she possessed against his violence was derived from the difficulties which the obstinate resistance of the Huguenots still created to him. Such of that sect as lived near the frontiers, immediately on first news of the massacres, fled into England, Germany, or Switzerland, where they excited the compassion and indignation of the Protestants, and prepared themselves, with increased forces and redoubled zeal, to return into France and avenge the treacherous slaughter of their brethren. Those who lived in the middle of the kingdom took shelter in the nearest garrisons occupied by the Huguenots, and finding that they could repose no faith in capitulations, and expect no clemency, were determined to defend themselves to the last extremity. The sect which Charles had hoped at one blow to exterminate had now an army of eighteen thousand men on foot, and possessed in different parts of the kingdom above a hundred cities, castles, or fortresses, nor could that prince deem himself secure from the invasion threatened him by all the other Protestants in Europe. The nobility and gentry of England were roused to such a pitch of resentment that they offered to levy an army of twenty-two thousand foot and four thousand horse to transport them into France and to maintain them six months at their own charge. But Elizabeth, who was cautious in her measures, and who feared to inflame further the quarrel between the two religions by these dangerous crusades, refused her consent and moderated the zeal of her subjects. The German princes, less political, or more secure from the resentment of France, forwarded the levies made by the Protestants, and the young Prince of Condé, having escaped from court, put himself at the head of these troops, and prepared to invade the kingdom. The Duke of Alençon, the King of Navarre, the family of Montmorency, and many considerable men even among the Catholics, displeased either on a private or public account with the measures of the court, favoured the progress of the Huguenots, and everything lapsed into confusion. The king, instead of repenting his violent counsels, which had brought matters to such extremities, called aloud for new violences, nor could even the mortal distemper under which he laboured moderate the rage and animosity by which he was actuated. He died without male issue at the age of twenty-five years, a prince whose character containing that unusual mixture of dissimulation and ferocity, of quick resentment and unrelenting vengeance, executed the greatest mischiefs and threatened still worse, 
both to his native country and to all Europe. Henry, Duke of Anjou, who had some time before been elected King of Poland, no sooner heard of his brother's death than he hastened to take possession of the throne of France, and found the kingdom not only involved in the greatest present disorders, but exposed to infirmities for which it was extremely difficult to provide any suitable remedy. The people were divided into two theological factions, furious from their zeal, and mutually enraged from the injuries which they had committed or suffered. And as all faith had been violated and moderation banished, it seemed impracticable to find any terms of composition between them. Each party had devoted itself to leaders whose commands had more authority than the will of the sovereign, and even the Catholics, to whom the king was attached, were entirely conducted by the councils of Guise and his family. The religious connections had, on both sides, superseded the civil, or rather, for men will always be guided by present interest, two empires being secretly formed in the kingdom. Every individual was engaged by new views of interest to follow those leaders to whom, during the course of past convulsions, he had been indebted for his honours and preferment. Henry, observing the low condition of the crown, had laid a scheme for restoring his own authority, by acting as umpire between the parties, by moderating their differences, and by reducing both to a dependence upon himself. He possessed all the talents of dissimulation requisite for the execution of this delicate plan but being deficient in vigour, application, and sound judgment, instead of acquiring a superiority over both factions, he lost the confidence of both, and taught the partisans of each to adhere still more closely to their particular leaders, whom they found more cordial and sincere in the cause which they espoused. The Huguenots were strengthened by the accession of a German army under the Prince of Condé and Prince Casimir, but much more by the credit and personal virtues of the King of Navarre, who, having fled from court, had placed himself at the head of that formidable party. Henry, in prosecution of his plan, entered into a composition with them, and being desirous of preserving a balance between the sects, he granted them peace on the most advantageous conditions. This was the fifth general peace made with the Huguenots, but though it was no more sincere on the part of the court than any of the former, it gave the highest disgust to the Catholics, and afforded the Duke of Guise the desired pretense of declaiming against the measures and maxims and conduct of the king. That artful and bold leader, took thence an occasion of reducing his party into a more formed and regular body, and he laid the first foundations of the famous League, which, without paying any regard to the royal authority, aimed at the entire suppression of the Huguenots. Such was the unhappy condition of France, from the past severities and violent conduct of its princes, that toleration could no longer be admitted, and a concession for liberty of conscience, which would probably have appeased the reformers, 
excited the greatest resentment in the catholics henry in order to divert the force of the league from himself and even to elude its efforts against the huguenots declared himself the head of that seditious confederacy and took the field as leader of the romanists but his dilatory and feeble measures betrayed his reluctance to the undertaking and after some unsuccessful attempts he concluded a new peace which though less favourable than the former to the protestants gave no contentment to the catholics mutual diffidence still prevailed between the parties the king's moderation was suspicious to both each faction continued to fortify itself against that breach which they foresaw must speedily ensue theological controversy daily witted the animosity of the sects and every private injury became the ground of a public quarrel the king hoping by his artifice and subtlety to allure the nation into a love of pleasure and repose was himself caught in the snare and sinking into a dissolute indolence wholly lost the esteem and in a great measure the affections of his people instead of advancing such men of character and abilities as were neuters between these dangerous factions he gave all his confidence to young agreeable favourites who unable to prop his failing authority leaned entirely upon it and inflamed the general odium against his administration the public burdens increased by his profuse liberality and felt more heavily on a disordered kingdom became another ground of complaint and the uncontrolled animosity of parties joined to the multiplicity of taxes rendered peace more calamitous than any open state of foreign or even domestic hostility the artifices of the king too refined to succeed and too frequent to be concealed and the plain direct and avowed conduct of the duke of guise on one side and that of the king of navarre on the other drew by degrees the generality of the nation to devote themselves without reserve to one or the other of those great leaders the civil commotions of france were of too general importance to be overlooked by the other princes of europe and elizabeth's foresight and vigilance though somewhat restrained by her frugality, led her to take secretly some part in them. Besides employing on all occasions her good offices in favour of the Huguenots, she had expended no inconsiderable sums in levying that army of Germans to which the Prince of Condé and Prince Casimir conducted into France. And notwithstanding her negotiations with the court, and her professions of amity she always considered her own interests as connected with the prosperity of the french protestants and the depression of the house of guise philip on the other hand had declared himself protector of the league had entered into the closest correspondence with guise and had employed all his authority in supporting the credit of that factious leader this sympathy of religion which of itself begat a connection of interests was one considerable inducement but that monarch 
had also in view the subduing of his rebellious subjects in the netherlands who as they received great encouragement from the french protestants would he hoped finally despair of success after the entire suppression of their friends and confederates the same political views which engaged elizabeth to support the huguenots would have led her to assist the distressed protestants in the low countries but the mighty power of philip the tranquillity of all his other dominions and the great force which he maintained in these mutinous provinces kept her in awe and obliged her notwithstanding all temptations and all provocations to preserve some terms of amity with that monarch the spanish ambassador represented to her that many of the flemish exiles who infested the seas and preyed on his master's subjects were received into the harbours of england and were there allowed to dispose of their prizes and by these remonstrances the queen found herself under a necessity of denying them all entrance into her dominions but this measure proved in the issue extremely prejudicial to the interests of philip these desperate exiles finding no longer any possibility of subsistence were forced to attempt the most perilous enterprises and they made an assault on the Brille a seaport town in holland where they met with success and after a short resistance became masters of the place the duke of alva was alarmed at the danger and stopping those bloody executions which he was making on the defenceless flemings he hastened with his army to extinguish the flame which falling on materials so well prepared for combustion seemed to menace a general conflagration his fears soon appeared to be well grounded the people in the neighbourhood of the Brille, enraged by that complication of cruelty oppression insolence usurpation and persecution under which they and their countrymen laboured flew to arms and in a few days almost the whole province of holland and that of zealand had revolted from the spaniards and had openly declared against the tyranny of alva this event happened in the year fifteen seventy two william prince of orange descended from a sovereign family of great lustre and antiquity in germany inheriting the possessions of a sovereign family in france had fixed his residence in the low countries and on account of his noble birth and immense riches as well as of his personal merit was universally regarded as the greatest subject that lived in these provinces he had opposed by all regular and dutiful means the progress of the spanish usurpations and when alva conducted his army into the netherlands and assumed the government this prince well acquainted with the violent character of the man and the tyrannical spirit of the court of madrid wisely fled from the danger which threatened him and retired to his paternal estate and dominions in germany he was cited to appear before alva's tribunal was condemned in absence was declared a rebel and his ample possessions in the low countries were confiscated in revenge he had levied an army of protestants in the empire 
and had made some attempts to restore the flemings to liberty but was still repulsed with loss by the vigilance and military conduct of alva and by the great bravery as well as discipline of those veteran spaniards who served under that general the revolt of holland and zealand provinces which the prince of orange had formerly commanded and where he was much beloved called him anew from his retreat and he added conduct no less than spirit to that obstinate resistance which was here made to the spanish dominion by uniting the revolted cities in a league he laid the foundation of that illustrious commonwealth the offspring of industry and liberty whose arms and policy have long made so signal a figure in every transaction of europe he inflamed the inhabitants by every motive which religious zeal resentment or love of freedom could inspire though the present greatness of the spanish monarchy might deprive them of all courage he still flattered them with the concurrence of the other provinces and with assistance from neighbouring states and he exhorted them in defence of their religion their liberties their lives to endure the utmost extremities of war from this spirit proceeded the desperate defence of harlem a defence which nothing but the most consuming famine could overcome and which the spaniards revenged by the execution of more than two thousand of the inhabitants this extreme severity instead of striking terror into the hollanders animated them by despair and the vigorous resistance made at alemeyer where alva was finally repulsed showed them that their insolent enemies were not invincible the duke finding at last the pernicious effects of his violent counsels solicited to be recalled medinaceli who was appointed his successor refused to accept the government requesens commendator of castile was sent from italy to replace alva and this tyrant departed from the netherlands in fifteen seventy four leaving his name in execration to the inhabitants and boasting in his turn that during the course of five years he had delivered above eighteen thousand of these rebellious heretics into the hands of the executioner end of section nineteen chapter forty part six